the National Archives podcast series, The 1911 Census, A Vision of England, presented by David Annell. Um, thank you for, very much for an introduction, Audrey. Thank you for inviting me to speak here this afternoon. My background is very much in family history research. I've been involved in family history in the family history world in one way or another since about 1977, to get this out of the way, um, when my Uncle Tom came to stay and I remember asking my mum the fateful question, how is he my uncle? Is he your brother or dad's brother? Or well, I knew he wasn't, it didn't quite make sense to me and she drew out a little family tree for me and it turned out he was my granny's second cousin, so it was a very, it was a Catholic, Edinburgh Catholic family, very complicated. Um, but that's what really, I can trace my interest in family history back to that day. I've still got the little family tree that my mum drew out for me on that day. Um, and I've been hooked ever since, and I've never really stopped delving into the, the family history all those years. I've been a professional researcher since the mid-1980s, and I worked for the National Archives for about 10 years, mainly at the late lamented Family Record Centre. Um, but after the closure of that marvellous institution, I moved here to Kew, and I left Kew at the start of 2010 to return to my former life as an independent professional researcher. So, what we're going to do over the next three quarters of an hour or so, I'm going to introduce you to a remarkable resource. Now, as a family historian, I'm obviously going to focus on the records as they are used by people researching their family history, but I also want to consider the social, economic, political value of the documents. And I'm a firm believer that if you are really seriously researching your family history, you ought to also be investigating the social, economic and political aspects of your ancestors' lives. Otherwise, you're just train-spotting, really, and collecting names and dates, and it doesn't really make it so interesting. So I'm going to start by giving you a brief introduction to the history of census-taking in the UK, primarily in England and Wales, although much of what I would say is, would also apply to Scotland and, uh, indeed, Ireland, although... Tragically, as many of you must know, the, the pre-1901 censuses for Ireland have, for a variety of reasons, not survived. Um, I will look at how and why the census was taken and how the scope of the questionnaire gradually widened to reach a peak in 1911. And then I'm going to take a look at some social aspects of the census to show how the documents can provide us with a context in which we can um, set our ancestors' lives. So I'll have a look at the way that it captured our society in the last throes of the glorious Edwardian summer, a cosy world of country estates and tea and tennis on the lawn and shooting parties on the moors, which was all about to be shattered by events taking place just across the English Channel, and yes, the upstairs-downstairs world was about to be turned upside down. The census records Britain's lost generation, the 885,000 men who died um, fighting the war to end all wars which is ironic, of course. And um, it also adds a fascinating insight into one of the most important issues of the day, the campaign to get the vote for women. Suffragists were actively encouraged to disrupt the census, and the records of their attempts to do so shed important new light on the campaign and on the society in which those involved led their lives. The census also gives the lie to the idea that em immigration is in any way a modern issue. Uh, the east end of London, as well as parts of Manchester and other major cities around the country, were a haven for Jews and other people fleeing from the poverty and pogroms of Tsarist Russia. And the records show that the census administrators handled the issues facing these people with a degree of subtlety and sensitivity that you'd be, perhaps be surprised about, considering the time. Um, 
And finally, I want to examine a fascinating aspect of the census, which I think has been overlooked by other researchers, and ask the question, did they get it wrong? We'll come back to that, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, clearly, this is uh, the, the, the centenary, that's the word I'm looking for, of the, the 1911 census, because it was 100 years ago that the census was taken. And had it not been for the uh, Freedom of Information request, which which got the census released early, they'd be working like mad now at the National Archive, preparing for the, uh, for the, for the um, opening of the census in January 2012. But as it is, it's all up and running, and we've now got to wait another 10 years until the 1921 census comes out. Right, a brief history of the census. First of all, what might have been? 22nd of June, 1753, obviously a date that you all know perfectly and you're always very, no, no, you're not, um, should have been one of the most significant dates in the family historian's calendar because it's the date on which a bill proposing the taking and registering of an annual account of the total number of people was scheduled to be heard in the House of Commons. The bill was well advanced, already passed through both Houses of Parliament, but it never had its final reading. The Commons rose before the session could take place and the bill lapsed. But that was the idea. There was a proposal to have an annual census. Now, I think, from reading between the lines, that this would not have been a list of names for every year, but it was at least a start, and that was what they planned to do in 1753. Um, and the question of whether Britain's population was falling or rising was actually one of the hot topics of debate, debate in the late 18th century. Um, Thomas Malthus published his essay on the principle of population in 1798, putting forward a controversial theory that increased wages led to a growth in population which could not be matched by the required increase in levels of food production, which in turn led to, led to subsistence living for most labourers. That was his political and economic theory. Um, and of course the idea of actually counting people in, in the whole country was not a new one. Several other European states already held regularly sen regular censuses. But it wasn't until John Rickman, a vociferous opponent of Malthus, listed his 12 reasons why taking a census would benefit the nation that the government began to take serious notice. Rickman believed the, that, in quotes, the intimate knowledge of any country must form the basis of legislation and diplomacy. And at a time when Britain was at war with revolutionary France, the pressing need to understand the extent of the country's potential military reserve was clear for all to see. So there were very good political reasons for, for the census starting. Um, and then in 1800, Rickman was responsible for drafting the very first Census Act, which resulted in the taking of the first national census of England, Wales and Scotland on 10th of March 1801. Now, several of you are going to say, but the first census was in 1841. Well, no, it wasn't, because there were four censuses before the 1841 census, in 1801, 1811, 1821 and 1831. But these are of little interest to us as a rule, as family historians. They are simply head counts with no names or other details recorded. Um, I think one of the reasons probably the administrators felt that to ask detailed questions of individuals... I mean, you've got to think of society then. It's a very localised thing. There isn't a lot of centralised government. Centralised government does not get involved in people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So... People start coming around and asking questions, suspicions are going to be raised. Is this to do with taxation? Is this, you know, why, why are people asking these questions? And I think it took a little while for the idea of censuses to soak in, and it wasn't really until 1841 that the conditions were felt to be right for an expansion of the scope of the census. The 1841 census coincided very neatly with the establishment of the General Register Office, which had, taken, had started up in 1837. And the General Register Office very swiftly took over running of 
the, uh, the, the 1841 census, and it was a bit of a panic, really, to get everything up and running, but they managed it. Um, and it was very, very ambitious for its time, because for the first time, they recorded details of every individual living in England, Wales, and Scotland. Names, ages, occupations, and birthplaces were all recorded, although ages, as a rule, were, narrow, were rounded down to the nearest five. So if someone was 47, they would appear as 45 in the census. If someone was 84, they would appear as 80 in the census. Ages up to 15 were meant to be given accurately, but anyone over that rounded down to nearest five. It didn't always happen, and you can take ages with a pinch of salt anyway in the census return, but that was the, those were the guidelines. And birthplaces, of course, they only gave an indication of whether or not the person was living in the county in which they were born. So you don't get precise birthplaces, but it was a start. 1851 saw the establishment of the classic Victorian census. The full names, ages, relationships, marital status, occupations, precise birthplaces given for everyone. Um, and with families neatly packed together like that, the records are so useful that it is very difficult to persuade family historians that they weren't taken with us in mind. Because it really does look like it, doesn't it? You see, you think, well, that's what I want to see. I want to know all the relationships. I want to know where they were born. I want to know how old they were. And look, the government did it for me. Aren't they kind? No, it wasn't for that reason, although it's very useful indeed. Um, the amount of detail recorded stayed basically the same right up until 1901. There was additional information about houses, about languages spoken by the people and the employment status, but the core questions, the names, the ages, the relationships, the birthplaces, the occupations, they stay the same right the way through 1851 to 1901. Um, we'll come on to the changes in 1911 in just a minute, but it's worth reminding ourselves that the census is still alive and well and with us today. Censuses continue to be taken throughout the 20th century, with the exception of 1941, when our, our minds were on other matters. Um, the range of questions asked varied greatly from census to census, reflecting generally the concerns of the government of the day. Most controversially, religion came up for the first time in 2001, although the question was an integral part of the census in Ireland, right from the very first census. But in, in England, Wales and Scotland, 2001 was the first time they actually dared to ask questions about religion. And of course the, the latest census took place on Sunday the 27th of March this year and although much has changed since the, the, the first census in, in 1801, a remarkable amount really has stayed the same. When you look at the form for the census from 2011 and compare it with say the 1841 or more the 1851 census, a lot of material is the same. Right, before we take a more detailed look at the 1911 census. It's just worth having a quick look, considering the remarkable changes that took place and were recorded by the first hundred years of the census. England in 1801 was predominantly a rural society. Around 75% of the population lived in small settlements, villages and small towns. In just 100 years, all of that changed and by the end of the century, the country had changed almost beyond recognition. Now, almost 75% of the population was living in towns and cities, and just a quarter left in the small settlements. And the rise in urban population was in some places quite dramatic, nowhere more so than the place that this graph here illustrates. Anyone want to have a little guess where that might be? We're looking at a population here of virtually zero in 1801, and by, well, by, let's say by 1901, we're at 100,000. That's a pretty big increase in 100 years. Any guesses where that might be? 
Not Manchester, like Manchester would have been much bigger than that in, in 1801. It's somewhere that virtually didn't exist. It was a little fishing village in 1801, and it was the home of huge iron works by the end of the century. Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough yes, absolutely, Middlesbrough. That is just an example. I mean, obviously it's an extreme example, but I could show you other ones. Barrow in Furness was similar, and Wilsdon in, in northwest London was a tiny village in 1800. But by the end of the century, with the railway coming in that case, massive population. Um, Wilson was originally part of Hendon, but by the end of, 18, by the, end of the 19th century, Hendon was almost part of Wilson. <laughs> you know, it was almost sort of swapped. But, but this is what the census recorded, and it's, it's incredible. And if, if they hadn't started it so early, all that information would have been lost. So it was a wonderfully brave thing to undertake. And we have to tip our hats to the people who were... Uh, visionary enough to, to get the census up and running. Um, this chart is actually taken from a wonderful website called A Vision of Britain, um, which you can get onto www.visionofbritain.org.uk. Loads of charts, loads of um, tables like that, and lots of information about everywhere in the country. Lots of statistical stuff, which again help you to understand the places in which your ancestors lived. <coughs> Right, moving swiftly on. 1911 census, that's what we're talking about today. All of the censuses since 1841 have been taken using essentially the same process. In the week before census night, an army of enumerators who were employed just to do the census, they were not salaried officials, they were not quite volunteers because they were going to get paid for it, but they were doing piecework effectively. Um, they delivered thousands of forms to households the length and breadth of the country. And they left instructions to householders on how to fill out the form and... They told them how to do it, listing the names and other details of all those who were sleeping in the house on the specified night, which was always a Sunday, because they're trying to get as many people at home as possible. And they told them they'd be back on Monday to collect the completed forms. That was by no means the end of the job, because the enumerators then had to undertake the somewhat onerous task of copying all that information from the householder schedules into the summary books, which they'd been provided with by the, the local registrars. Many enumerators were, to say the least, not particularly happy about their lot, claiming they'd not been made aware of that part of the job and that they might have thought twice about taking it on if they'd known. Some of them even made their feelings known by writing comments in the summary books. And this is from this wonderful book called Census the Expert Guide, available in all shops, co-written by, oh, me, and, um, <laughs> and, and the wonderful Peter Christian. Available in all good bookshops. This is, a, this is from the 1851 census. Uh, a guy called Edward Henry Blade, who was the enumerator appointed to the post uh, in the parish of All Hallows Barking near the Tower of London. He says, The enumeration of this district was undertaken by me in the belief that I should be fairly paid for my services. I was not aware that all the particulars were to be entered by the enumerator in a book, the work without that being ample for the sum paid. Nor had I any idea of the unreasonable amount of labour imposed. The distribution, collection, etc., of the schedules, together with the copying of the same, occupied between two and three hours for every 60 persons enumerated. And for this, the equivalent is one shilling, he says, in capital letters with lots of exclamation marks after it. And there are other examples as well. They, they, they took this opportunity. They knew that this was going to become a legal document, so they took the opportunity not of writing a separate letter to the registrar, but writing it in the book. So, yes, the enumerator's lot was not always a happy one. But in, in addition to the, the complaints by the enumerators, there was a growing concern and a genuine concern that the process of copying the information from one source to another was actually introducing errors into the census. It's inevitable. If you've ever tried copying out some piece 
copying it into another one, you're going to make mistakes. Everyone will make mistakes. It's inevitable. So officials planning the 1911 census took the momentous decision to do away with that part of the process. Instead, they would use the completed householder schedules as the master records and would extract all the data directly from the forms. And at the same time, the officials decided to introduce a number of new questions and to request additional details on some of the existing questions, all of which is, of course, very good news for us. The final bit of good news here is that the coverage of the census extended to include, for the very first time, the officers and men of the British Army serving overseas. Before that, all that had happened was that the, uh, the Registrar General had asked the uh, War Office for totals from the muster rolls, effectively, of people serving over abroad and they would have been incorporated into the final count but no names were collected but in 1911 for the first time they said right let's do it let's count and name all the people so not just the men but their families who were out there with them in India, Caribbean, Malta, Gibraltar, wherever they were in the world. The 1911 census was also the first to use modern technology to gather data and this is Audrey's favourite point I know. Um, for the first time, the data was going to be extracted from the census forms and recorded on little punch cards. Cards would be read by the groundbreaking Hollerith machine made by the British Tabulating Machine Company, a wonderful organisation. And of course, it provided the statisticians with much more flexibility and different, more sophisticated ways of analysing the data, as well as, of course, ensuring greater accuracy in the collection of the data. They're not just doing it all by hand, they're actually punching these holes and then they can count them and get the machine to come up with lots of different ways of interpreting the data. So, very exciting for those statisticians at the uh, Registrar General's office. In earlier censuses, when the householder schedules had been copied into summary books, each of the books had also recorded the administrative details regarding the area that was being enumerated. Without that information, of course, the census is useless. They need to know where it is, what type of place it is. So they created these enumerated summary books solely for this purpose. So that means that the structure of the 1911 census is a bit more complicated. So we've got the householder schedules and the enumerated summary books, two sets of documents. Um, we just need to have a quick look at the impact of this. Um, the householder schedules, each household is listed on a separate form, good news and bad news. The bad news, I would argue, is that we are seeing things out of context a bit more. We're just dropped in on one household. We don't instantly see the neighbours, so we don't get a flavour for what the area is like straight away. You know what, you look on the old census pages, you've got six, seven households on one page, and you get a very good flavour of what the area is like. Whereas in 1911, you're just getting that one page on the screen. You can go back and forwards, but how many of us genuinely do that once we found the person we're looking for? Probably not. Probably not a lot of us. But I would say that is far outweighed by the good news, which is that the forms that we're looking at were written by our ancestors themselves. I mean, that's fantastic. How often can you see your great-grandfather's handwriting? It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to see. And of course, it's got all their errors, their corrections, their little idiosyncratic comments. We'll look at some examples of this later. And of course, if you're interested in graphology or signatures, then this is a, this is a fantastic source. Um, famous people, Thomas Hardy's signatures in there. That would be a collectible item, that. One of the reasons these records were digitised before making them available to the public. The 1911 census also saw the biggest increase in the number and variety of questions since 1851. There were now 16 distinct pieces of information recorded about each individual. 17 in Wales and the Isle of Man where language spoken was also recorded. So we have additional information on. This is the greatest one, married women, called the fertility in marriage question. If you use the 1911 census, you'll already be familiar with them. 
telling you how long a married woman has been married, rather how long her, her current marriage has lasted, that's the way they put it, um, how many children have been born to that marriage, how many are living and how many have died. Fantastic information. Again, with the health warning you'd give from any information on the census that if they wanted to lie about anything, they would lie about this, particularly if they were a little bit unsure about how long they'd been married and wanted to cover up the fact that they'd been married for five years and they had a seven-year-old child, that, you know, that sort of thing. They might just manipulate the information a little bit. But it's, it's wonderful. It's a fantastic piece of information. Birthplaces of people born in Scotland and Ireland. Before the 1911 census, all you got was the word Scotland or Ireland. Now, you, in theory, get the actual parish and county in which they were born. Um, and for Ireland, that's particularly useful if your ancestors can have been considerate enough to hang on to 1911 and let you know where in Ireland they came from, then you've got that link back to the home country, which is so hard to find. And there's information about naturalisation of naturalised British subjects. In previous censuses, it just said naturalised British subject, or NBS sometimes. Now it is meant to say the year that these people were naturalised, with not wanting to labour a point too much, the, the usual health warnings. So that's what the, the schedules contain. The summary books basically summarise the information. They, they contain the information that relates to the whole of enumeration district. So it gives you the description of the district, all the boundaries, all the administrative areas, the names of the streets, etc. It gives you the instructions to the enumerator, explaining how the enumerator was meant to, to complete the information. Summary of each household, including unoccupied buildings. And this is the crucial thing about the, 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 the summary books. Without that, you don't know. You've got number 24, you've got number 28 in the census. Where's number 26? Is it missing? You know, someone not filled in a form? You can tell from the summary books because it will say number 26, uninhabited. There is no other way of knowing why you haven't found a census entry for a particular address. Vital documents. And then they list shops and church halls, other buildings. So for social historians, you can paint a picture of the high street because you can go along and you can see all the different buildings that were, that were there, whether they were occupied or not. And of course it includes the summary of totals and signatures of the enumerator and registrar. Right, let's have a quick look at the census. First thing to point out and first thing people say, what's that about, is the big white block on the right there. That's going to disappear on the 2nd of January 2012 because as uh, part of the agreement to release the information early that the um, information commissioner has, um, they agreed to, to release all this information except the information in this column. The technical term for this, this information has been redacted, covered up in layman's terms. And it's the information about infirmities, so it's information that could be of a sensitive nature. So, in theory, of course, people could and, and, and are indeed still living, who were recorded in the 1911 census, they're getting on a bit, but increasingly people living to over 100 is not, is not as uncommon as it was. So that information was redacted, and as if by magic, I believe on the 2nd of January 2012, which is when the census would originally have been released, that those white boxes will disappear and we will see nothing underneath them in 99 cases out of 100 because there's probably nothing there. But what is particularly frustrating is if you've got information, because, because these are filled in by human beings and they're just columns, they're not data fields on a computer, you can get information carrying on from here going under this box and the moment you can't see it there's nothing you can do about it, even though it's not the information they're trying to protect, just on practical considerations that's what they have to do. Um, have you noticed down here 
you can see it, there's a number written in red. And you will find that number on every 1911 census form. Every single form has that number. And if you have noticed it, do you know what it means? It took me a while, but I got it. What it is, it's the number of children in the house aged 10 and under. And you will find that on every single form. So here we have one because there is a nine-year-old. And the reason they did this was a very quick count to check whether their predicted population was going to be correct. And they can do that by working out how many have children aged under 10 are recorded and comparing that with the expected birth rate. Very simple statistician's way of checking whether their information is going to be right. When they, before they do the census, they've got a very good idea of what the population should be, which is one of the arguments for not taking the census, actually, because we know what we're going to find out anyway in most cases. But that, you'll see that, you can check it, every time that little red number down there is the number of children aged under 10 recorded on the census. So there's a little bit of information at the bottom there. You've got the number of, house, the number of rooms in the house, so eight. This is fairly, not, not a bad-sized house. This is number of houses not including kitchens and, and that sort of room. And then here you have the totals, number of males, number of females, and total number of persons. And it's that information that's carried into the summary books, and then the totals are, are, are worked out for the whole district. I mentioned before about errors made by people. And one of the most common errors you get in the census is the question in the information about particulars as to marriage. How many times have you seen that? Numbers written and scored out. The reason they're scored out is the information is only meant to be given by married women about their current marriage. So if the woman is a widow, that information was not meant to be recorded and would not have been carried forward into the stat statistics gathered by the Registrar General. And Married men or widow, widowers were not supposed to record the information at all. But here, this is the beauty of the 1911 census, the fact that this information wasn't copied into a book, because if it had been copied into a book, that information would not have been recorded. That, that information would not have been carried forward because it was incorrect, it should not be there. It is asking for each married woman to give this information. And this man, Isaac Hume, is not a married woman. He's actually my wife's great-great-grandfather. And we didn't know that they'd had three children who had died. We only knew about the one child. But now we know that there are three children who died and we can find out a little bit more about the family through that information. And it's because we're dealing with the original forms that we've got that information. Because otherwise that would, have, that would have been lost. This is the reverse of the schedule, the earlier one that we looked at. And you can see that the man's obviously got his John Bull printing set out and rather than writing Whippendale Road. It would be nice if you'd spelt it right, because that should be an E there anyway. Um, but he's, you can see he's, going, he's got, I don't know, it's a long road. If any of you know Watford, Whippendale Road's a very, very long road. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but this is, this is what the, the, the reverse of the schedule. This is the bit filled up by the enumerator before he handed it to the householder. All the information about the registration district, the sub-district, the, the enumeration district, the name of the person, Mr. Moulting, and the address. This is one of the army schedules. Now, on first glance, it looks like there's not nearly as much information, but the reason that there's not the, the 16 columns of information that you have on the other forms is that no officers, serving officers or men, were married women. Therefore, you don't need to ask those questions. Yeah, fair enough. And obviously, no serving officers or men had any physical or mental infirmities. <laughs> don't need to ask about that, do we? So, but 
So the other information that you need is there, basically ages, uh, marital status, occupations, which is clearly going to be some sort of rank in, in the army, and the birthplace. This is a page from a, what they call a small institution. This is actually an industrial school, so it's not an, an institutional, uh, like, a, like a workhouse, but it's one of these small forms. We get three or four pages of names. And again, you have, you have all the information there that you would expect to see from the other, from the other forms. What I've got here, this is a merchant vessel. This is, so again, we've got lots of information. Again, the master of this vessel has completed his information here, even though he shouldn't do. You see, it's, it's so difficult, and you can understand. When you, you're going across, you're completing this form, you come to a column, you want to put in information there. But, but in this case, you don't, you're not meant to. Merchant vessel forms are very interesting. This is the reverse of it, and it tells you a lot about where the ship had come from, a lot of information. There's this official number. It's actually a, belonged to Glasgow, it's a Scottish ship. It's, the schedule was delivered at Alexandra Dock, Grimsby, on the 1st of April, and it was collected at the Riverhead at Alexandra Dock, so it hadn't gone very far. But very useful to, to have that information, because otherwise you would just have the, the house where the person lived with no, no head of the household living there, just the, 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 the wife and children. But this will explain where they were. This is what the enumerator summary books look like. So this is the one for Watford, for the address that we looked at before. Um, description of the district, the boundary of the district, the contents of the enumeration district. So these are all the streets that are in it. That's the, the boundary, the outline, and the different administrative areas that they need to collect. Um, and this is what the meat of it looks like. These are the, the details. So you remember what I was saying about un unoccupied houses? I think I'll zoom in on this, actually. This is there's our Mr. Malting there, G.H. Malting, living at number 18. And in a little bit more detail, you see here we have, we've got some lock-up shops here, 14 and 14B, and 24 is uninhabited. So without that, interestingly, there is no entry for number 26, which is a bit worrying, somewhat disproves my point, but um, it must be there somewhere. There's, we wouldn't know what happened to number 24. We wouldn't know why there wasn't an entry for number 24 if it didn't ha we didn't have this list, because all we would have is the schedules, which just jump from number 22, in this case, to 28. I'll have to investigate that. Um, and then there's the abstracts, the totals. This is all the information that's just the, the statistician stuff. To search the 1911 census, you have, at the moment, two choices. Gradually, some of the other um, commercial companies are getting the 1911 census online. Ancestry started, genealogist.com started putting stuff online. But to get the full collection at the moment, you go to this website here, which is 1911census.co.uk, or if you're sensible, you go to Find My Past, because you can get it as part of the subscription to all the other censuses. The reason I use this sometimes is that the search engine is actually much better than Find My Past. And you can search for free on this. So sometimes, if you're having problems finding someone, search for them on here, and then use the information that you found from the search to locate them on Find My Past, Ancestry, wherever else you want to do it. That's the sort of basic background to the 1911 census. What I want to do now is just to examine some of these social aspects. The 1911 census, as I said at the start, was taken at a time when the old Victorian social divisions were very, still very much in place. 
Big country houses with scores of servants still to be found on the records with clear divisions between those upstairs and downstairs. This is Chatsworth House, actually, the, the home of the Cavendish family, better known as the Dukes of Devonshire. 1911 census for Chatsworth records several pages of servants. I think I've got it here. There we go. That's just one of the pages of servants there. Oh, look at all those laundry maids. How can you need all those laundry maids? Housemaids. There's a laundry maid. There's a housekeeper, laundry maids. Housemaids down there, still room maids, sewing maid, daily maid, porters, a couple of porters down there. Loads of servants, unbelievable. And it works all the way down, the housekeeper there working down through the ranks, the kitchen maids and then the stable boys. The summary book confirms that the family weren't at home. This is it here. The, the enumerator was obviously a little bit confused about how to record the fact that the Duke of Devonshire wasn't at home because... That says the name of occupier, and of course you've got to have a head of the house there, and you can't put a housekeeper there, Mrs Young, housekeeper, or Duke. He wasn't quite sure whether to put the Duke or the, or the housekeeper, so he put both, and hoped that that would do. He obviously, he obviously seemed reluctant to describe Mrs Young as the head of the house. So. Um, in fact, the, the, the Devonshires were slumming it here, at Compton Place in Eastbourne. Um, and the 1911 census shows that in addition to the servants back at Chatsworth, they also had a large number travelling with them. There we go. So there's the Victor, the Duke of Devonshire, and the Duchess, and a couple of little Cavendishes, and governess. The governess was always a difficult one, whether she was part of the, the household or part of the servants. It's a very difficult situation for governesses. They were neither one thing nor the other. And it, I think it's safe to assume that the Devonshires also had a little pad up in London where they would spend the weekends on occasion. So um, that's one end of the social scale. This is perhaps the other end of the social scale. Um, and thanks to the crusading efforts of people like Henry Mayhew, Charles Booth, Octavia Hill, Emma Cons and others, the worst of London slums and rookeries had been cleared by 1911. But large sections of the population still lived in appalling, cramped, insanitary conditions. This image is from, taken from the Victorian Albert Museum collection. shows a street in Lambeth pictured, pictured towards the end of the 19th century. gives us some idea of what life would have been like for the poorest in society in the period le leading up to the 1911 census. Here's a man called Thomas Neal, just an example. Born in Southwark in the 1870s, still living, in that, living there in 1911. His address was 6 St Stephen's Place. One of the streets described on Charles Booth's famous poverty maps have you, have you seen Charles Booth's maps? He colour codes every road to give an idea of the social scale. And he's got wonderful language for describing the different social scales. This is the lowest, the lowest class, which is described as vicious semi-criminal. Not judgmental at all then, Mr Booth, no. So Thomas and his wife here had eight children aged between one and 15, and the family were living in just two rooms, two occupied rooms. I'm sure I could find much worse than that if I really looked for it. So it's just, just an example. Life would have been similarly tough here for John Bromley, a Salford man who was unemployed at the time of the census. His occupation there, just unemployed. And he's got a six wife and six children, five of whom are actually from an earlier marriage, living in just three rooms. So life was still very, you know, that the whole upstairs downstairs thing was still really in place in 1911 and in fact I'm sure we could argue that it's still in place today. Right let's have a look at the World War One so this is just taken on the eve 1911 census 
and because they recorded the British Army overseas as well, we've effectively got everyone who was going to die fighting for uh, the British in 1914 to 18 war. We're going to be able to find them in the 1911 census. This is Wilfred Owen on this particular page. Wilfred Edward Salter <coughs> Owen, aged 18. Um, and Owen died, of course, just a week before the end of the war. Very nearly made it. There is a pupil teacher full of hope in 1911. Um, this is another family here, and really, I mean, practically every family suffered some sort of loss during the war. Some were affected more than others. Here we have the family called Follows family near, from Ansley near Atherston in Warwickshire. The two oldest boys here, Richard and Arthur, um, aged 19 and 18, both died on the same day, 25th of January 1915, and are buried together in adjacent graves, which is at least something for the parents, but you can imagine that, what, that the effect that must have had on the family to lose the two older sons at such a young age. And, I mean, of course, it wasn't just the volunteers and the conscripts who suffered. England had a large standing army at the start of the war. And here we have a page of uh, people stationed in Pune in India. This particular man down the bottom here, Henry Woolmer Stubbings, was with the 2nd Battalion, the Dorset Regiment, stationed out in Pune when the census was taken, and five years later met his death during fighting near Baghdad. So we get a glimpse of these people just before the tragedy that was about to unfold. Right, moving on to another political issue of the day. By far the biggest domestic issue was the time, around this time was the campaign to get votes for women. It affected every level of society and it was definitely reaching its peak around the time of the 1911 census. And the census was seen by many as an opportunity to raise the profile of the campaign. And for, for many it had the added appeal of being a non-violent means of protest. Not all suffragists were in favour of the campaign and many argued that the census had motives which were actually beneficial to women and to their families. For example, planning for better, better long-term planning for provision of health care. So to disrupt the census was seen in some circles as not necessarily the right thing to do. Um, but the census was an obvious target, and it's possible, though I haven't been able to prove this, that Mrs Pankhurst's own experience of working on the 1901 census, because she was a registrar, and she, you can see in the 1901 census for uh, Chilton, Manchester, she was an enumerator, and sorry, she was a registrar and she signs some of the, the forms. You'll see the name E. Pankhurst on the, on the census forms of 1901. So she would have recognised how important the census was to the government, so she was well placed to, to think up the idea of this campaign of civil disobedience. Supporters of the suffragettes' cause were encouraged to disrupt the census by refusing to complete the census form or to avoid the enumerator by staying in a safe house. And this is a classic example here of a spoilt form. The clue is in the suspicious lack of detail for all these women here, ages about 40, about 21, about 49. Not known, not known. Lady unknown we've got here. They knew that these people were there, but they didn't know who they were. They were effectively avoiding the census and hiding it. Um, a note on the reverse of the form written by the enumerator explains what was going on. There's a bit more detail. He says, a schedule was left in the ordinary way with the occupier. On calling, it was handed to me, not filled up, but with the words, no votes for women, no information from women, written across the schedule. <laughs> On calling, it was handed to me, not filled up, but with the words, no votes for women, no information from women, written across the schedule. Further information was refused, and the servants and family instructed not to give any information whatever. The information now given has been gathered by me from the husband. Ooh. 
who was not living at home on 2nd of April, and other members of the family. I gather that the several ladies mentioned slept at this home intentionally to evade enumeration. This is the best information available subject to above qualification. So you can see they actually, the enumerators went to some difficulty to try to get the information. Here's another one. This is, I love this one. Another example of where a family where the husband and wife weren't quite of the same mind. The original entry seems to have been straightforward enough. The form seems to have been completed by a man called Mr. Maund. But then, sometime later, his wife, Eleonora, appears to have scored out her name and written wife away at the foot of the form. <laughs> Presumably, Eleonora's aim was to deliver the form to the enumerator when he came back to collect it on the Monday morning, but it looks like Edward discovered her plan. His words make fascinating reading. There we go, that's what she did. She scored herself out. He's written her back in again. My wife, unfortunately being a suffragette, put her pen through her name, but it must stand as correct. It being an equivocation to say she is away, she being always resident here, and has always attempted by a silly subterfuge to defeat the object of the census, to which, as head of the family, I object. <laughs> Wonderful. This man, you will not be surprised to hear, was a friend of Cecil Rhodes. <laughs> yes. Right, but before we start to think that the campaign was entirely divided, on gender lines, let me introduce you to my hero, Mr. Victor Prout. Or possibly Prout, I don't know. Story starts on 3rd of April, the day after the census was taken, when the enumerator, Mr. Percy Cooper, went to collect the census forms for his district. When he arrived at number 6 Stonard Road, Palmer's Green, he was presented with this form. Rather than completing the form, the head of the household, Mr. Vic Victor Prout, had written, I wish to protest against the terrible treatment women have been recently subjected to as the result of the Liberal government's method of repressing the agitation in favour of women's enfranchisement, and I refuse to fill this census form because women are claiming that until they are given the rights of citizenship, they shall not be counted, and I leave out the men as an act of sympathy with that claim. All the withheld information will be freely given as soon as a woman's enfranchisement bill becomes law. Victor Prout. Then, on the 4th of April, Mr Cooper wrote... To, poor old Mr Cooper. The, he's, I mean, it's not his fault, is it? He's just trying to do his job. He wrote to the registrar, setting forth his little difficulty. This is what he said. As a result of a tramp yesterday from 8am to 9.30pm... Bleeding heart, violin for him there... I got in all my schedules except six, which I was unable to obtain owing to the people being out. I, however, secured the remaining six today. I have to report that Mr Victor Prout of 6 Stonard Road, Palmer's Green, refused to properly fill up the form or give any information, notwithstanding I read the riot, scored out, <laughs> Census Act to him. <laughs> On the ground that he wishes, and then he quotes the whole thing, to protest against the terrible treatment, etc. Yours faithfully, Percy Cooper, enumerator duly appointed. Lovely. So, at this point, we have to assume then that the registrar took it upon himself to write to Mr Prout. Because the next record we have is Prout's reply to the registrar, Mr Judd, dated 7th of April. His letter is a lesson in how to protest in a civilised manner. Dear Mr Judd, thank you for your courteous and kindly note asking me if it is not possible to reconsider my decision in reference to my census form. Let me assure you that, it is on, that on my part I do not wish to cause distress either to yourself or anyone else. My protest is of course not directed to you but the government and my reason is stated on the form. Please do not feel anxious that any action which it may be your duty to take on account of my having refused to fill up the schedule will cause any unpleasantness. 
all my past relations with yourself have been so, of so pleasant and friendly a nature that that would be quite impossible. Believe me when I say that any action you may feel it your duty to take I shall welcome most gladly. And let me add in conclusion that no one respects more than I do the stern need which compelled me to take the course I did. With kindness regards, I remain yours sincerely, Victor Pratt. Isn't that wonderful? Moral high ground. He's not having a go at the registrar. He's just trying to make a point, that's all. And of course, he'd be quite happy if he was fined or if he was prosecuted in some way because that's what the, 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 uh, the suffragettes wanted to happen. They wanted the publicity. Of course, the government, on the other hand, didn't want to know. They wanted the census and they wanted it as accurately as they could, but they were not prepared to prosecute suffragettes for not, for not filling out their forms. Um, so at this point, the registrar must have written to the census office, wringing his hands and tearing out his hair. The next document we have is their reply to Mr Judd, asking him effectively to get as much information as he could. And it says here, in reply to your letter of the 11th inst, the Registrar General desires to express his thanks for the trouble you have taken with regard to the enumeration of the occupants of number six Donard Road, Palmer's Green, Mr. V. Prout. You are requested to fill up a schedule with the best information available concerning Mr. Prout and the other occupants on census night. The schedule, when filled up to the best of your ability, should be included in its proper place among the others for enumeration district 36, and the necessary additions should be made in the summary book. Oh, there was a bit more detail, that's it. And this is what he managed to get. He did quite well, really, considering. And I suppose the fact that he was the registrar meant that he had access to the, the children's births, so he knew how old they were. He said they were about 50, Victor and, and his wife Isabella. He was an artist in black and white, which is interesting. He was an engraver, and a little bit more about him. And he says here, I obtained this information um, on reliable authority and believe that the, the, the four persons above named past the night of Sunday, April 2nd, at 6 Stonard Road, Palmer's Green. He's done his job, really, and the census office are happy with that. Victor Pratt's probably not quite as happy as he would have been because he wanted the publicity, wanted the prosecution, and all he's done, really, is disrupted a few people who were just doing their job, so he probably didn't quite achieve what he wanted. The government's line was clearly they had no intention of prosecuting anyone. Um, they would just have been seen as playing into the suffragettes' hands, so they weren't prepared to do it. I later discovered that Victor Prout was an, engra an engraver and a minor political activist. Um, in 1909, he wrote to Christabel Pankhurst, putting his vote at the disposal, disposal of the Women's Social and Political Union, basically saying, I will be your vote, which is quite good. And then sometime around 1912, he was involved in founding an organisation called the Men's Federation for Women's Suffrage, of which he became the honorary secretary. So I'd like to find out a little bit more about him. Um, while I was researching... Mr. Prout, I made contact with a woman called Elizabeth Crawford, who's coming to speak at the census conference, am I right? This is her wonderful book, The Women's Suffrage Movement, a reference guide. It's a fantastic book if you're interested in, in suffragettes. And Elizabeth was very kind enough to track down and send me a copy of this print, which is from 1902 from a magazine called The Sphere. Um, and this, uh, this engraving here is of women who work at our coal mines, cleaning coal at the pit brow. And you can see down here the signature, Victor Prout. This is, this is actually a piece of his work here. So you can see that he was obviously concerned about women's issues, about social issues as early as 1902. So I, I'm very interested in this man. I want to, I'm, not, I'm not quite going to claim the suffragette cause back for men because I don't think I can quite go that far. But I think that it's, it is important to remember that there were a number of men who were passionately committed to the cause. OK. Um, another issue. The enumeration of foreign Jews was big concern. Effectively, the problems were 
that they wanted to make the census as accurate as possible, but there was a genuine concern that Jewish people living in the east end of London, other parts of England and Wales, would have problems completing the form because they simply couldn't read the form. So much as we see census forms in, in Urdu and other languages now, they actually produced forms in Yiddish. Um, it says here, in certain quarters of the east end of London, in some large towns where there are considerable numbers of Jewish aliens, it is desirable, if possible, to select enumerators with a knowledge of Yiddish. And this is a nice bit here. This is talking about the forms that they drew up to, to, to deliver to people who couldn't speak English. But he says here, I am to point out that these translations contain a paragraph which states that the schedules will only be used for obtaining the numbers of the community as the present government is desirous of obtaining the total of the inhabitants in England on Sunday, April the 2nd. It is not for the purpose of taxation, not for enforcing military service, and not on account of religion. So it's addressing genuine concerns that the people would have. And I think it's been done quite sensitively. And it says, well, it must be clearly understood that the English schedule must be filled up and not the translated copies. That's what the form looks like in Yiddish. So they're not supposed to, I'm not aware that any were filled up and completed because they've got the exact same layout just with the text written in Yiddish, so in, in, in Hebrew script. So they could read that out to them and then fill in the boxes on the English version of the form the correct answers. So it was, it was quite, clever, quite a clever way of doing it. And I must admit, I'm, I'm quite surprised and impressed with the, the authorities for doing it as well as they did. And I think it, it did result in very, very good enumeration of, of the East End of London. Now, one very last issue I want to deal with here. I asked before about whether they actually got the census wrong. It's a big claim. Long before it was taken, the statisticians did their sums and worked out what they expected the population to be. They made allowances for birth rates and death rates, emigration and immigration, and built in a margin of error. The figure they came up with in previous censuses was always accurate to within one-half of one percent. Statistically speaking, that was fine if it was, if it was there. When the 1911 census figures were published, the statisticians got a bit of a shock because in the final published figures, the population was more than 1.5% higher than expected. And that's starting to become very significant. There's been a lot of discussion about what caused the problem, and I think I've got the answer. I also think that the GRO were onto it at the time. Let's have a look at this schedule here. It's so an animal family. It's not actually my family, because mine were all up in Scotland at the time, but these are ones who had moved down to Gravesend. Typical working-class Edwardian family, father, mother, six children aged between 13 and three months. Father Alexander is a dock labourer, children born in and around the Thames estuary, fair amount of mobility, probably due to their father looking for work. Basically, they stay in the same area. But there are a couple of clues that suggest that things aren't as straightforward as they might seem. Have a look at the occupation column. We have here dock labourer, nothing for the mother. Remember, this is about the source of income, so the fact that she's a housewife, full-time mother doesn't count as far as the census is concerned. Then um, the children, scholar, scholar, blank, then scholar, and two more blanks. We can explain the first two blanks. Arthur and Nellie, the final two blanks here, Arthur and Nellie weren't of school age, so they weren't going to school. They were aged four and three months. But why is Alexander blank there? Why is he not got an occupation? Because, madam? Could be. That's a possibility. There is that to consider that he might have something in there. He has, in a way, got a handicap. He's dead which is a fairly serious handicap. He died in 1903, aged two. He would have been 10 if he'd still been alive, but he wasn't. He was dead. 
And the confusion is brought about by the questions in column six to nine which mention children who had died. They introduce the idea that we're counting children who died. Look, five children still living, one dead. One, two, three, four, five, six. One of those is dead, and it's Alexander. Now, the GRO knew that something was wrong straight away. Even before the forms had been counted, a circular was issued to the registrars and enumerators instructing them to check that the number of children listed on each form didn't exceed the total of children still living in column eight. That's what they were meant to look out for, a simple count. You run down there and you say, okay, six children here, five there, that's an error. But this wasn't picked up. I say a simple count. This is schedule 264, okay? Even the most conscientious enumerator is going to miss some things. It's bound to happen. And my thinking here is that they missed so many people that the number of people counted who were in fact dead has skewed the figures in the census. And that that number of dead children listed in the census will account for the extra 1% in the population. You know, it's, it's a significant number of people, but you can see how easy it is for that to happen. Um, oh, I should have zoomed in on that. There we go. So that's, that's the thing to look out for. Don't assume that just because these people are listed on the census that they're necessarily alive. I think it's going to be with children more than anyone else. But watch out for that and look out for the little clues. See, they, they didn't know what to do, poor things. They've put a dasher and then they've written single. It's, you know, it's, it's very uncomfortable for them and it's... You know, this is a, a child who died eight years ago, that's a little baby, and yet they're putting in that he was age 10 because he would have been age 10 if he was still alive, but he never made it to, to that poor thing. I'm sure that is that in the interpretation of it that was the problem, and it was the introduction of this concept of children who had died, because the census was always previously a snapshot. It was never asking about history, but here it's introducing this idea of what has gone before, which had never happened before. I notice that it's now three o'clock and I've overstayed my welcome a little bit, but I, I hope that's been useful to you. I hope you will um, go and look at the 1911 census with fresh eyes and that you will find some fascinating stories in there. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. This event was recorded on the 31st of August 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.